Hi everyone, welcome to SAMA, a weekly series which invites an expert to talk about their area of expertise. Today we are very lucky to have Dr. Lauren Tessier to talk about mould and mycotoxins. Lauren is a naturopathic physician. She combines naturopathic functional and integrative medicine to address the entire person. She is a shoemaker certified physician specialising in the treatment of chronic inflammatory response syndrome, also known as CIRS, which results from exposure to water damaged buildings. Her practice is dedicated to helping those suffering with mould, biotoxin and mycotoxins associated illnesses resulting from water damaged buildings. So welcome to our show, Lauren. It's fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for having me, John, and hello, everyone. Um, okay, well, I'm going to go right to the heart of it, Lauren, and ask you, why, why did you decide to specialize in molds? Why did you gravitate towards molds? That's a great question. So, you know, first of all, it's, it's quite ubiquitous. It's everywhere, and it's mm. something that's a very important um, impact on health that goes overseen. Um, the kind of additive portion to it is uh, after I, you know, Got out of school, fresh-faced, ended up in a small town, Vermont, where, still you know, I, <laughs> thank you, thank you, <laughs> um, where, you know, there was, there was quite, quite a few people who were um, sick, coming in with horrible brain fog and fatigue, and everything that I was trying from a naturopathic perspective really wasn't, um, you know, making a, a really big change. So, you know, when you finally ask someone about what's happening in your home and, you know, we noticed that there was all this mold, mold remediation that had come uh, after a flood that we had in 2011. Yes. So, you know, coming into a space where people are, you know, profoundly impacted was another thing. And then um, I have a, a family history of a, um, a pro deeply loved one, an uncle of mine, who had passed from a pretty rare and severe autoimmune condition. Yes. And in being, you know, a young adolescent and, you know, helping my family kind of um, sort through his things and, you know, get his, his, um, his home prepared while he was in the hospital, something that always stuck out was that he, he lived in a moldy space. Um, and it was just something that never left my side and was always kind of there. And as the years marched on, Wegner's granulomatosis, which is what he had, yes. is always kind of in the back of my head. And then as I learned more and more about mold, um, just the connection with the uh, dysregulated immune system and the profound impacts that mold can have on um, the immune system and autoimmunity, it just, you know, came together in my head and it's just something that um i believe there's a connection there of some sort and um, i'm not saying it's a causation but it's been my driving step forward because i see so many people come into the practice with what i call a nondescript autoimmunity yes. and if i can help people resolve that and not have to go that path of um, autoimmunity out of control and lose a loved one like I that that is my goal so um, there's like a threefold branch of why I do what I do um, I'm, I'm picking that you're quite an empathetic sort of person you've got a lot great you know, feeling for other people I see this the sign behind you no frowning <laughs> 
Hugs, <laughs> smiles, and what's that word behind the smiley face? Warm, warm, fuzzy feelings warm, are fuzzy allowed. Feelings. And it's being hidden by the Mr. Happy smiley <laughs> face. So that's, that's, that's beautiful. Well, you're, you're actually living, living um, what, the, um, what that sign is saying because you, you're wanting to um, give some health to people and help people. Uh, you know, you're quite compassionate. Um, actually, it's very, very early in the summer. We've already had our first question. It's from Susie Smith. Susie, Susie is a wonderful person. Um, she lives in um, um, in America, in Florida uh, area, sort of thing. <laughs> my my geography is terrible, but oh, we, we, yeah, Susie Susie is a fantastic person. Anyway, she we digress. She's a friend of ours. She asked the question: Can you introduce some remedies and diet to remove mold illness? Um, okay, your uncle unfortunately passed away but with what you've learned since then would you would you do something differently now to help him possibly overcome the illness yeah so the the first step for really anyone who's um, navigating mold exposure and mold illness um, and Susie you can go through all the remedies that you want but the reality is if you have a continued exposure you are only going to improve so much if at all and so it really comes down to how how full your toxic cup is how much is there that you're continually being exposed to that your body might not be able to keep up with um, getting out your body is so good at detoxing and sure we need more support depending on who we are and our genetics and that kind of stuff but the the biggest backstone to getting better is really avoiding exposure and for some people that might look like remediation of their home for some people if you're lucky enough to rent and i do say lucky enough to rent that means moving potentially from your home um, and then there are other folks who own their home and unfortunately that gets to be costly remediation so the backbone really for treatment for anyone is really avoidance of exposure first and then we can talk about the remedies and the binders and the antioxidants after that right so the first step is to get away from the antagonists get away from the mold itself right and then once you eliminate that okay once you have gone to a safe place mm -hmm. what would you do then to try and rid yourself of these poisonous spores well i would definitely test the safe space to make sure that it was yeah. safe right. you know that's definitely, um, you always want to ensure that for yourself. And we do that through something called uh, the ERMI, which is a dust test, also known as the uh, Environmental Relative Moldiness Index. So once you've, you know, assured that some of the more common and more dangerous molds aren't in that space, then typically we start the discussion of putting people on a binder um, and we start the discussion of using um, antioxidants um, like glutathione and these things there that's really the backbone for treatment but the reality is a lot of people when they're navigating mold illness are far sicker um, than expected and Putting them on a binder right out of the gate can really upset their system. Yes. So for a lot of people, there's a lot of um, preparatory work of helping to 
um, open up their detox pathways, helping to kind of heal the gut first. So that way the gut can deal with the detox and the liver understands the process of the detox. And then you can start to slowly um, detox them and then add in the binders. So depending on how sensitive these people are or what else is kicking around in their body, you know, um, with co-infections and things like that, it right. can get quite complicated. Yes, yes. Is there anything that could actively um, kill any mold spores that are around body that's yeah. toxic to your body? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm a little bit more of a um, purist when it comes to this. Yes. I get very cautious and protective with regards to my clients with um, really big claims for um, you know, people will say, oh, spray this in the air and it kills yes. mold or yes. we, we have to navigate that very cautiously. So when it comes to maybe things that are in your environment, <clears throat> first and foremost, we always want to physically remove visible mold. So through remediation. So for some folks that might mean cutting out the piece of drywall that does have the mold growth on it. Yes. Um, but when it comes to killing the spores in a space, I tend to err on the side of using um, some type of uh, photochemical or photoelectric oxidation, like purifying unit. Um, and the reason why is rather than using an air filter that's going to kind of hold on to things and catch them like a net, uh, these purifiers that have essentially a, a emitting light source that mm. helps to degrade those uh, strong bonds um, in the mycotoxins and also to help degrade the spores. Um, they actually do the service of breaking down and killing the spores themselves. Um, so, you know, when you're working on killing a mold in an area, I tend to go a little bit more high tech and I might suggest a purifier, but so long as remediation is firstly taken care of. Yes, yes. Um, just how dangerous is household mold? Like everyone knows that it's not very good for your health and you've talked about your uncle. Um, uh, is common household mold as dangerous as that? Well, there's a lot of different common household molds. In reference to that um, <clears throat> test I mentioned, the ERMI, mm. that looks at the most common 36 molds that are found in households yes. across the U.S. Gosh, 36 so, different types. Yep. <laughs> and it, it might vary from, you know, China to England to, you know, New Zealand. Um, so at least the ones within the home on an ERMI, those are the ones that we know can have some type of detrimental okay. human health impacts. Mm. Um, and of those, the most concerning ones tend to be your stachyboitrous or your really um, popular black mold. That is the black mold. Um, Wolemia is another concerning one. Uh, cladosporium, chaetomium, and quite a few of the aspergillus and penicillium. So some of these molds, we have to ask why are they dangerous? Quite a few of them do produce mycotoxins, and we can talk a little bit later on about what, what those are. Sure. And some of them are actually agents of infection in the human body. So, 
you know, one might secrete a toxin and the other might do really well trying to colonize your sinuses or, you know, infect your lungs even. So it, it really depends on how the mold gets into the system, what it does in the system, um, and how healthy you are to tolerate it. How, if you, if you walk into a house and you can't smell mold, does that mean there's no spores in the air? That's, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. So usually the smell that we're catching is a, a, what we call an MVOC, a microbial volatile organic compound. Right. Um, so a gas that's kind of hitting up against our nose, letting us know there's something there. Uh, first and foremost, not everyone has the best sense of smell. Okay. Secondarily, um, you know, there's not always... Um, molds that are going to secrete that. Um, and I, I'm not aware about certain mycotoxins smelling a certain way. Um, but yeah, there can still potentially be mold in a space, even if you don't smell it. Um, I do encourage patients to really pay attention to how they feel when walking into a new space. A lot of people who are mold sensitive will say, you know, oh man, I... I, I'm in here and, you know, I, my brain fog is going or I feel really fuzzy or I'm having difficulty concentrating or I have a headache or, you know, my post-nasal drip is starting. So even if you can't smell it, sometimes if you're mold sensitive, you do have these little giveaways that can give you a hint if a place is safe or not. Right. Um, and sometimes the smell is very strong. I've been walking through a neighborhood and smelled it just in, it's everywhere. Which brings me to this next question. If you are walking past a house which is quite severely moldy and you can smell it, if you can smell mold, is it a danger? Even, you know, even if you're just walking on the sidewalk? Do you have to hold your breath and just... <laughs> I, I like being cautious with people. I think there's too many risks in life to be... Um, dogmatic and to over alarm people about inherent risks. You know, um, we could say the same thing about walking past a gas station, you know, and, and smelling you don't, gas. You don't, rush a, you don't rush past gas stations, then I take it. <laughs> I, I <laughs> oh, certainly don't take my time, but. That's no, no, just me then, yeah. <laughs> one of those things where everything in life has an inherent risk and you really need yeah. to kind of be aware of. Um, kind of what you're willing to sacrifice and how, how stressed you're really going to make yourself about it. So maybe if you're walking by a home, sure, you pick up the pace. But if you're having to go into that home and dialogue with someone in there and sit there for a half an hour, then I think it's reasonable to really think, you know, do I really want to go in here? Do I really want to expose myself? Right. Um, we're live streaming on Facebook, hi Facebook, um, and many people that are watching will be wondering, well, how will I know if I have a mold illness, if I've got mold in my environment? What are the signs in my body? You've already mentioned possibly a runny nose. Are there other signs that you can um, give us that uh, will make people aware? So I encourage people to also think about the different ways that mold can affect our body. Yes. And based on that, we can understand what our symptoms might be. Okay. So kind of 
as a visual or not as a visual, we have a, a thought of um, allergies, true allergies, which uh, we say are IgE mediated. So it's a certain type of antibody in the immune system, a subclass E that kind of controls all of these allergies. That's a true allergy. And that's going to look like asthma, sneezing, dry eyes, kind of um, sinus pain. And then we have mycotoxicoses. So myco mold toxicoses, the process of becoming toxic. We have um, a toxic impact, which I find looks more kind of neurological, sometimes has some, um, unfortunately, more severe consequences to it. Um, then we have what we call chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which is kind of the inflammation fallout after a mold exposure. And then the final way that mold can really impact us is through an active infection, an active fungal infection in the body. And so depending on how the mold is interacting with your body, our symptoms are going to look slightly different from one to the other. Okay. I guess... Um if an illness is, is very slow in its onset, it'll be mm -hmm. hard to pick it up. You know, you can see a change, sudden changes, but if the change is very slow and insidious, and again, I'm picking the molders, the latter, where things can happen sometimes slowly over a period of time, health issues. Yeah, and that slow, insidious process can be really hard to... Um, grasp. That's why a lot of the folks that I see, you know, they'll say, we'll sit down, we'll take a really long history. And I'll say, well, when did you start to feel nasty? And they'll say, well, you know, it was in 2013. And then we'll finally kind of bring it together. We moved into the new house in right. 2012. There was a water intrusion event in the middle of 2012. Then I started with a headache and then maybe my libido fell off. And then you know, the brain fog really got worse. And then one day I couldn't feel the left side of my body. Like it comes so insidious. You're absolutely right. So insidious and slow that it really takes um, teamwork between the provider and the patient to um, really pinpoint where the issue may have started. If someone's wanting to move to a house, are there things that they should look out for? Are there certain house designs which ring alarm bells to you? or certain areas, like don't live in this part of the States, or try, try if you do, then try and go in poles so you're off the ground. Are there, are there things to look out for? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's start walking down the path and we'll, we'll deviate off it if we run out of time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that I always say look up. Look up, look up, look up, look up. Look the up. first thing you do if you're looking for a space that you either want to tell if you want to live there, work there, rent there, whatever, look up, check the ceiling, see if there's stained ceiling tiles, see if there's paint separating from the ceiling, see if there's staining. Staining can look brown, yellow, gray. You yes. might even see visual black mold. Mm. Um, so looking and paying attention to that, paying attention to the floor, seeing if there's any kind of warping in any of the hardwood floors or right. seeing if like a carpet is excessively stained um, on the walls, checking once again for that paint bubbling or even wallpaper peeling away, um, checking around windows, anything that 
sits into the wall of a home or kind of what we say breaches the exterior, you always want to check and make sure that that's really well sealed. You know, any type of, um, if you put your hand up to it and you feel a temperature gradient between, you know, the wall and really severely between the window, then you might have a nice hint that you have a draft coming in. And anywhere that we have big temperature gradients, we have the possibility of condensation happening. Right. Uh, yeah, so those, those are kind of the, the big ones for like uh, in living spaces. When you're peeking in bathrooms and kitchens, always check under the cupboards, always look at the piping, see what's there, see if the toilet tank is really sweating. Um, because outside. sometimes, what was that? You mean the outside of the tank. Right, right. The outside of the tank. Sometimes, at least where I am in New England, we have a lot of um, wells that, you know, they're, they're dug wells that bring up water rather than being on like a main municipal system. Okay. And that water comes in really, really cold. And oftentimes in an older home, you don't heat the toilet water. And so you'll see uh, essentially um, toilet tanks that sweat and then they trap between the wall behind the toilet or sweat down into the floor. So I've seen some toilets be some big issues um, as are uh, vents in a bathroom. You okay. always wanna make sure that those vent properly to the exterior of the house. Yes. Um, let's see. The basements, basements are always something to think of. Yes. Um, ideally, if someone is looking at a space um, and it's a crawl space, before you sign anything, before you agree to live there, you want to make sure that you can peek in that crawl space and see if it's well maintained. Uh, crawl spaces in general should be really well sealed off with a nice... Um, heavy, I believe it's six mil plastic. It might be higher than that. I can't recall the number at this point. Um, because crawl spaces are just absolutely notorious for having their own little special ecosystem, collecting condensation, collecting standing water, not breathing. And then if we run our house ventilation through there, through a colder area, um, it's possible that we get condensation in our heating ducts and our venting. So nice. if I had my way for people who are looking for a safer space, I would actually have them avoid crawl spaces. I would have them either lean more towards a full basement where they can really get in there and inspect and make sure it's well sealed or run a dehumidifier or run some type of um, active ventilation there or opt for a slab, which is a slab foundation where it's just, you know, poured concrete that the house is built on. Um, but even, the, sorry, sorry. I was just no, gonna say that even, even the slabs have got problems, haven't they? Because the, the concrete draws in the moisture from the ground. Mm -hmm. If you haven't sealed it off with some tar paper or some other. Right, right. And I think that that's the other thing is no, no house is going to be perfect. Okay. There'll be some that are pretty darn close and others that are much, much further away from perfect than, you know, you'd like to believe. Um, roofing. Roofing is another big one. If you have a nice pitched roof that just has, you know, one angle and two angles, that's great. 
if you have a really fancy roof that has, you know, the angle and then the angles over um, the, the different fancy windows and um, there's lots of different lines to the roof, more lines invite the opportunity for more leaks for sure. Okay. Um, we worry about skylights too, skylights, oh. anything that's going to kind of put a hole up through that roof, mm. you probably want to avoid. So simple roofs. And you also want to stay away from a flat roof too. Flat roofs are notorious for um, holding and collecting water if their drains aren't appropriately maintained year round. Yes, and roofs have got a habit of being quite high. And so <laughs> it's not something, they, they're, they're above eye level one might say. So people don't often go up there to check the drains. Yeah, you got to be brave to do it. Sure, <laughs> or you, sure. you got to have someone who's willing to do it for you. Yeah. Yeah. And at, at least in New England um, or places where we get a lot of snow, um, snow or rain, I remind people, you know, the way the water flows off of the house is really important. And that includes snow too. Um, so we always want to make sure if you do have gutters that they are cleaned out seasonally or else we get ice damming or, you know, big, big, huge icicles that end up just kind of slowly leaking into the interior oh, uh, of the house. Yep. Lovely. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's so much that um, people can really learn about how to kind of look for what might be signs of mold issues or how to best prevent mold issues in a home. And um, at my website, Life After Mold, um, there's a nice little pop-up there and there's a mold prevention 101 um, booklet that people can just type in their email address and then um, download that booklet. And it kind of gives a nice lay of the land of everything that I've just talked about. Great, great. I guess it's important to buy a house that gets lots of sunshine. Nice. You know, yep. warmer mm -hmm. environment, so it's not so cold inside. Right. Okay. Um, now, mycotoxins, you promised to tell us about them. Yeah. Now's a <laughs> time to, to roll that onto the table. Sure. Uh, so, go ahead. Oh, Ask no, away. Um, myco, you, <clears throat> you taught us myco is mold, toxins being toxins, that's the toxins from the mold. Mm -hmm. um, if you could explain how, why, it's, why they're so bad. Sure. So mycotoxins are really, really, really small molecules. We call them low molecular weight. And because they're so small um, and because they're, they're uh, mostly nonpolar or what we say, um, they're in a ring structure. If there's any chemical chemistry nerds out there, they pass really easily through um, fat soluble structures and the outside of our cells have our, our fatty membrane, right? Yes. Our nervous system and our nerves have that fatty membrane, our myelin sheath. So we find that mycotoxins have this phenomenal means by which to move in and out through the different compartments of the body. And because they're so small, um, they really like getting in there and hanging in there for a while. Um, mycotoxins in general, they are thought to be the immune system of molds. We're still not quite sure, uh, micro, microbiology speaking, um, why they're made. Supposedly they're not necessary for growth, um, but we do know that they act as a certain defense for molds. 
Um, and in particular, we think that they might be something called a virulence factor, yes. where yes. Um, they kind of allow themselves to secrete this toxin and kind of kill off any of the competing cells around them, including other molds, bacterias. And in doing so, they get to settle into this nice little niche where they're not being competed against. So we actually think that mycotoxins might act as a virulence factor for aspergillus infections, maybe in the lungs or things like that. Um, still kind of a new developing working theory, um, but that's, that's one of the things that we think they're there for. And, you know, our understanding of what mycotoxins do actually go back to um, the uh, uh, discovery of penicillin with Alexander Fleming, how he, you know, we, we all know the story where he went in, he plated his bacterial plates for the weekend, left them on his bench with the window open and in blew some mold spores. And then he comes back on Monday and he sees that where some of the mold that was inoculated from the outside landed on the plate, there is a ring of no bacterial growth there. And um, that, that stuff that was secreted from the molds, actually, we identified now and we use widely on a day-to-day -day basis as uh, penicillin. So with that being said, there's all of these different uses for mycotoxins, and we think of them as something dangerous and problematic to the system, but we do also need to understand that every, every sword has two edges, and you know, we, we've made some wonderful medicines out of mycotoxins. Um, we've made some, you know, questionable medicines out of mycotoxins, like our statin drugs, our cholesterol drugs are mycotoxin-based. Um, wow, but yeah. So, I didn't even knew that. Yeah, and there's, there's a huge list um, of, of drugs that we source these things from. Um, but in general, with mycotoxins, I think that on record, there's about 20,000 to 300,000 in theory. And that's a really big, wide, wide amount um, uh, that could be in existence. And then I think since 1983, about 3,200 had been identified. And then when we start to talk about human health and what walks into my office or maybe some of your listeners um, what concerns they have about mycotoxins those health oriented mycotoxins really start to distill down to maybe like 10 to 15 that are most commonly known so we have this huge amount that might actually exist but then we only have this working small number that we really pay mind to right well you've uh, described a little bit earlier the tests you uh, can do for detecting mold. Are there tests you can use? It's a huge glass, by the way. <laughs> You're expecting a long talk, weren't you? Um, <laughs> is there a test you can do for mycotoxins in the body? Yes, yes. And it also depends on um, what you're looking for. So in the US, uh, there are two major tests, although I do believe that there's maybe one or two more in development for um, looking in the body. One in particular uses something called an ELISA method, which is where we take antibodies produced by the immune system 
and we use them depending on what mycotoxins they attach to to identify the presence of mycotoxins in a, in a tissue or in a urine sample. The other form of testing for mycotoxins that exists is uh, something called liquid chromatography, where um, it's a long involved process. I will long, forward. Long word as well. It just rolls off the tongue, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> And uh, what, what that process, that process is a little bit more specific, which I think some people really like and really value, but it's like looking for a puzzle piece. If your puzzle piece is maybe a little different or a little changed because of the way it's been processed by the body, and now that it's excreted into the urine, I don't like using those liquid chromatography tests as much because I find that um, it might uh, miss certain mycotoxins that might have been changed by um, our detoxification processes. Um, whereas the immune system one, the one that uses the antibodies, the ELISA method, um, there's a little bit more of kind of a forgiving uh, means by which to identify. So because certain families of mycotoxins can look a certain way, but they might have one little difference structurally on them, they're still being identified by these antibodies. So I tend to really like the ELISA method. Different physicians might like the chromatography method. Some doctors even say, draw them both. You know, I think that finding a positivity on either one of these tests at least lets you know that there's an issue and it needs to be addressed. So you know, no matter the way that you want to order them, it's really up to you or your provider. Okay, okay. Now, uh, I want to talk about two common remedies, if you like, for moulds. It's um, in going circulating around the internet. Uh, one of them is ozone treatment, basically shutting off all your windows, doors, mm -hmm. keeping all your plants, cats, humanoids, everybody out. And you run this very powerful machine that fills the house with ozone. Yep. Now, um, how good is it, in your opinion? Will it will it work? Will it will it make the house uh, mold free? What I'm sort of seeding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, ozone. So we have mold, and then we have mycotoxins. Okay. Mold mold is our our living cell that's secreting the mycotoxins and mycotoxins are you know that that physical chemical right. ozone is really great because it has the ability to go in and break up bonds and living things have bonds in their chemical structures are, you know at a very minute level and then our um, mycotoxins have some pretty strong bonds that ozone also has the ability to degrade. So is there the potential use of using ozone to treat mold? Absolutely. And to break down mycotoxins? Absolutely. We even know that we use ozone in some cases to break down um, uh, VOCs, the volatile organic compounds. So there's a time and place for ozone for sure. But part of that remediation that I keep laying into, um, you know, if you have a piece of drywall that is corroded and falling apart and is not structurally sound, and you lock up your doors and you blast ozone into the space, 
I still worry about what might be there, what might have not been completely cleared out. And then what I further worry about is, did you fix the leak in the roof that's been allowing that slow water intrusion? You know, if you haven't, then you're just gonna have to keep blowing ozone into your space over and over. The dangers of ozone is that, you know, it's a respiratory irritant. And with that being said, I know a lot of your listeners use ozone therapy. And if it works for them, I am in absolute support of them. But I do know that for some people, you can go into respiratory distress with ozone. When you're using ozone as a remediation tool, um, it dissipates pretty quick. So I actually worry a lot less about someone going in and what we say, ozone bombing a space, as opposed to someone who has like a little machine set up on their desk that just constantly spits out ozone um, in into their local area. Okay, okay. So mm -hmm. it's not a bad thing, but just you need to be careful, I guess, right. what you're saying. As with anything, right? <laughs> <laughs> As with most things, yeah. Um, and if you can't be careful, just watch out. <laughs> now, another thing is garlic. Now, you've already mm -hmm. explained how mycotoxins aren't living, and the question was going to be, can garlic, can garlic kill aflatoxin or mycotoxins in the food? Well, they can't be killed, but can it negate it? I'm... You know, I don't, I don't have the research specifically for that. Um, I am not aware of garlic negating mycotoxins. And it's always a long-winded answer with me, John. I'm sorry. And for oh, your listeners, yeah, it's always cool. a long-winded answer. You know, garlic, garlic is, um, it, it offers sulfur. Yes. So that's why it's so stinky, right? It offers a good amount of sulfur into the system. And you know, our bodies use sulfur for a good component of our detox. So while it might not actually be able to break down and degrade and destroy those mycotoxins, there might be some type of detox benefit to having garlic in your diet um, yes. as you're working to detox those from your system. Okay. Okay. So again, it's got to be good. <laughs> um, but be careful. <laughs> Yes, I suppose that um, if, you, if you've got a high burden of toxins in your body and you're doing anything to remove the toxins, the toxins have got to go through the body's pathways, excretory mm -hmm. pathways. So I guess you've got to take things slow, especially if you are compromised in other areas. In right. Aspect. Now, now, you specialize in the treatment of chronic inflammatory response syndrome, CIRS. Can you yes. explain to us in more detail what is it and... What are the common symptoms of that? Sure. So <clears throat> with uh, CIRS or SIRS, um, let's say you have lots of, uh, in, in New England, it's a horrible habit we have. We call them burn piles. <laughs> and it's, it's oh. a, a curious thing where we'll take all of our yard waste um, and sometimes for the, the more creative folks, some household things will go in this fire um, <clears throat> and we'll have these big bonfires to burn things and get rid of. Oh. What ends up happening is we usually need to put an accelerant on it. So people will put maybe like a gasoline or something to start the fire. Mm. If you think about starting a fire in the system, 
and having an accelerant, it's, it's not too far off from SIRS. So when I think of SIRS, I think of um, mycotoxins being the gasoline, the accelerant that really starts the fire okay. and gets it kind of up and going. And we know that the accelerants can burn off pretty quick. So, you know, you might start a fire and the gasoline burns off, but then the fire keeps going. So for SIRS, I like to equate it to that, where, you know, that the initial trigger, that thing that kind of got everything started, um, could be burnt off. And the result, that fire, that inflammation that keeps going in the body, that's literally the chronic inflammatory response syndrome. So the perturbing thing doesn't have to be there any longer. And so when we think of what really entails chronic inflammatory response syndromes, the inflammation is really the key, the out of control inflammation. Okay. And inflammation is something that our body needs. It's how we fight infections. It's how we signal that our body's in distress. We need these things. We've evolved with these things, but at some point they should turn off. They should power down. We should go back to a status quo. But for these folks, their fire just keeps burning and it can manifest in quite a few different ways. And the problem is, is it can look like so many other things out there. It can look like so many other things. When folks come into me, the biggest signs of um, SIRS is typically uh, fatigue, brain fog, cognitive complaints. And so some of these cognitive complaints is trouble learning new things, trouble recalling things, difficulty with word finding, like, oh, can you hand me the thing over there? Or <laughs> you can't remember some of these words. Um, and then it goes into um, some of the more neurological concerns of like tingling, um, shooting, stabbing pains. Um, and then we go into GI stuff with maybe even diarrhea and constipation. Um, and then, of course, we get the respiratory stuff of, you know, um, congestion, cough. And... When you sit down with someone who has SIRS and you actually go through the things in their body that are their biggest complaints, they are just checking the boxes for every system in the body, for the GI system, for the nervous system, for the respiratory system, even for um, you know, some of the, the cardiac symptoms. In fact, some of these folks really suffer from POTS or the uh, uh, postural orthostatic syndrome, where, you know, depending on if they're lying flat or standing up, their blood pressure changes and their heart rate changes. So these folks will typically go into a doctor's office and they'll say, I have this, 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 this. And their doctor is totally taken back. They, they're how could you, how could all of these things exist in your system? How could this all be happening at the same time? Um, and the reality is it's the inflammation that's just run amok throughout the entire body so that it's multi-system. So lots of different systems in the body and multi-symptom. And, you know, that's how these people present. Like they present almost as, I hate to say it, but, you know, a, what looks like a medical impossibility to some physicians, you know? Sure. So the uh, regular physicians, if there is such a person, um, 
what would they do in that situation? Would they just issue some antibiotics and tell them to go home and find a corner, a dark corner somewhere and just rest it off? What, do they have the understanding that you do? You know, I, some, some doctors will try to piecemeal it piece by piece and say, let's look at this symptom. Let's look at this symptom. Um, you know, and they'll try to apply themselves and really work for the patient, which is, can't be frowned upon. Um, for other doctors, they'll put the patient on an antidepressant because they can't possibly believe that, you know, one disease state can cause all these issues. And I, I see that more often than not. I see that more often than not. Gosh, the body's mm -hmm. screaming for help and right. the doctor gives earmuffs. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's the way the body communicates. It's, oh, gosh, it's amazing. Now, um, is there a, a test you can do for uh, SIRS that is proof positive you have got a chronic inflammatory response? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, <clears throat> the danger there is proof positive. So... There is some sticky, sticky nomenclature around chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Yes. So typically, I, I think we need to start with the concept of what is diagnosable and what is not. Okay. If you go into a doctor's office and you have high blood pressure, there's what we call a diagnosis code, an ICD-10 code, which means that this is a diagnosable condition, it has a name, it has a way it's diagnosed, it has a way it's treated, and it exists in all the medical paradigms that are international throughout the world. Something like chronic inflammatory response syndrome does not have a diagnosis code. And so it also makes giving someone that diagnosis code very difficult. And then when we also don't have a specific code for an illness, the same way we don't actually have a code for chronic Lyme disease, let that sink in. Mm. That's why so many people are underserved when it comes to Lyme disease. When we don't have representation of a disease, it's also very difficult to have the tools to diagnose and the tools to treat. So when you're navigating chronic inflammatory response syndrome, there are a handful of tests that you can use to say, you know, are, are these representative of the inflammation that we would see in this syndrome? And unfortunately, um, you know, it's, it's like a constellation. And of that constellation of positive tests, you really only maybe need, you know, three or four of those tests to be considered to have chronic inflammatory response syndrome. So to go down through the list, we have something called C3A, we have something called C4A, we have MMP9, we have MSH, we have the VIP. It's starting to sound like alphabet soup, mm. but the reality is- And the VIP sounds those, quite important. Right, yes, absolutely. <laughs> And it actually is. That's the ironic part of it all. <laughs> um, but when we go through that list, not everyone needs to have all of those positive. In fact, I have some chronic inflammatory response folks that don't 
have C3A and other ones that do, or some that don't have C4A elevations, but their TGF beta is off the charts. One of the testing parameters that I have found to be the most helpful when I'm navigating this is the TGF beta one. And, you know, we, we can do all the other inflammatory marker testing. Um, it gets really expensive. Sometimes they're negative, sometimes they're positive, which adds a whole other level of confusion. But with TGF beta, the reason why I like working with it is it tells us about your, your, your T cells in your immune system, these little guys specifically called your T regulatory cells, and how just functional they are. And you want them to be regulators. You want them to go in and keep a tight control over um, you either going too autoimmune or too allergic in your reaction. And so by seeing what your TGF beta is doing, you can really have a grasp of just how well controlled and well behaved your immune system is. So, you know, there's lots of different markers that you can run for SIRS. Not all of them are going to be positive. Not all of them are going to be negative. But if there's one that I really, really love for folks, it's the TGF beta one. It sounds like there's a bit of an overlap between those tests and testing for Lyme. Like if someone's got, and so it must be very hard. Is there a commonality between the two, in your opinion? Testing-wise or symptom-wise? Symptom-wise and possible cause-wise. Cause whether it's whether the, a tick bite you know, introduces mold into your bloodstream. Hmm. Okay. You know, I think that symptom-wise, we see a lot of that same neurological complaints. <laughs> and we know now that Lyme, it's only an infection really in the beginning. And after that, it's that inflammation fallout. It's the body reeling and trying to say, what is this, this bug here? It's not quite an active infection, but it's certainly making many, many people sick, but they're not running a huge fever. You know, they're not having the rash day in and day out. So there is a theory that, um, you know, Lyme can also potentially be a biotoxin illness. That's kind of what we call SIRS, too. It's another phrase for it is biotoxin illness. Um, I, I have yet to be aware if a tick bite can kind of introduce mold okay. into someone's body. But, you know, we certainly know that ticks and insects are vectors for viruses and bacteria and spirochetes. Um, you know, so... <sighs> I'm, I'm just not clear about that. Right. Uh, with the discussion today, one thing that really has struck me is, A, mold is common. Mold is prevalent everywhere. And B, mm -hmm. it's astounding that there's no medical, no regular testing for the mycotoxins, which the, which the mold <clears throat> for just about every state in America, there'd be moldy houses as an example. People who live them in them almost certainly will become sick and almost certainly over a period of time. They mm -hmm. go to a doctor and there's no regular um, you know, testing procedure or method of you know, testing, go from this test to this test to this test, as you do with other illnesses. But it's so common. Mm -hmm. I find it hard to believe, so hard to believe. And, you know, I... There's, there's always curiosity about what the motivation is behind there. 
Um, I have concerns that if, you know, mold is recognized to be as far reaching as I know it to be, as I believe it to be, I really think that we would just have an absolute pandemic on our hands, you know? I think that um, we are aware of how dangerous mold is. You know, the research with mold and mycotoxins really started in the 1940s in the agricultural industry and in the zoological, where, where like- We're the last. <laughs> you know, like we, <clears throat> the reason why though, it's because there's money in agriculture. You know, like we need to keep our livestock safe and healthy and we need to keep our food system profitable. So of course we're gonna do everything within our power to do that. And so, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, the, the human race has come second to that. And yeah, I just, I, I worry about just how far reaching that mold illness really is. Um, and I also worry about the implications, you know, and do we hit a point where, you know, do we link atherosclerosis and that chronic inflammation of our blood vessels to chronic mold exposure? I don't know. You know, uh, we think of chronic illness as coming from inflammation in general, like yes. could mold just be an inflammatory trigger for the basis for lots of things? Maybe. So I also get, you know, kind of curious about um, why we don't want to pay attention to the inflammation that mold causes. As, as a doctor, you'd be well aware of the same drug for animals will be perhaps one-tenth the price of exactly the same drug for humans, but yep. in a smaller dose, of course. So mm -hmm. the animals have got it good, haven't they? <laughs> they do. They, they absolutely have it good. And they have someone paying else. Someone else paying for their medical bills too. <laughs> yeah. um, now, for anyone that um, has doubts as to how dangerous mold is, just leave a nice firm piece of fruit out. It can be an orange, a nice firm orange out in a damp place and let mold do its work. And they can see the mold breaking down the cells mm -hmm. and the orange. And then to, it's just it's, it's science 101, in fact, even before this. And so it's very simple to imagine what damage it does to your own body cells if the mold gets into your body. It's going to be the same thing. The, the, the mold is going to start breaking down the cell mm -hmm. walls. And then once uh, the cell, cells are compromised in that way, it's all over. It's, um, it's a, really, it's, a, it's a unfathomable how there's just no, A, no regular, no standard tests, B, the treatment seems to be rather laxadaisy. Yeah. It's only you know, when people like mm. you to actually start, you know, start you know, making some noises, hey guys, you know, <laughs> or setting up procedures for testing. Right, right. And I think the more confusing part is, like we said, when we're going through all the different ways that mold can cause issues with allergy, mycotoxins, infections, SIRS, and then there's even a funky one where people could technically be, have like an intolerance to it, the way people have an intolerance to food, but not quite an allergy. You know, there's so many different ways that mold can interact with the body. And when you have a fungal infection, you take antifungals, yes. you know, and when you have mycotoxicosis, you got to get those toxins out. You have to bind them up. So I think there's also confusion for folks about, um, 
you know, they think mold is mold is mold, but the reality is there's different ways that it interacts with the body and that adds a whole other level of confusion for how it gets treated and identified. There's many parts of America that get hit by hurricanes. Mm -hmm. Hurricanes, rain, floods. We hear about the water damage, but you never really hear about the mold, the lingering. Mm -hmm. um, uh, is, is mold an animal or is it a plant? <laughs> oh, that's another good question. I was then struggling what to, to continue well, on, my, on my rant there. I'm not sure that's... So when, when we think about, um, back to biology, we have our different kingdoms where we have our animal kingdom, we have our plant kingdom, and then we have our fungi kingdom. So it's actually an entirely different uh, kingdom of species. Um, but, you know, you're, you're right. Our, our hurricanes come through yes. and they cause lots of water damage. And then, you know, we don't really talk about the fallout, but oh. you know, I, I have a... Uh, a um, uh, a news a news alert set up to a, a relatively large and popular search engine um, that alerts me to whenever uh, mold is in the news, uh -huh. and you know you'll see these little things pop up where you know there's a doctor in North Carolina who's trying to alert people to the mold dangers months after they've happened with the recent flood, or there's a you know dormitory at a college in another state where, you know, students are fighting to get representation and to be heard. So these battles are happening, but they're happening on such a quiet and hushed level um, that the media just doesn't pick it up. Is it because there's not the money in it and in, in the research and the treatment? Probably, you know, probably I hate to, you know, be a, uh, a, uh, a believer in, you know, conspiracy and, you know, pointing it's not a, fingers. Yeah, but it's not, it's, a not, it's not a conspiracy. But it's, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that honestly, if there were more money or there was more of a drive um, or more of a more motivator, you know, to... to right, we, need more, we need more Laurens in the world. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's quite a few of us out there. And um, yeah. I don't know if you're aware, John, uh, we recently, a few of the uh, chronic inflammatory response doctors and I have come together to create a nonprofit called ICI or the uh, International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. Um, we've come together to make a professional nonprofit group where we're working to educate more providers on this topic. And some of the doctors who are involved in it, um, you know, really popular names in the mold community, Neil Nathan, uh, Jill Carnahan, Sonia Rappaport, Mary Ackerley, uh, Kelly McCann, um, just a lot of phenomenal docs who we're really working to make a change at the level that we can impact. So that way we're educating more providers and we're kind of uh, working on getting this organized front set up. Uh, we've been together for about one year and we actually have our first conference coming up in May in Phoenix, Arizona. So we're, we're very excited. About yes. That. I, you'll be meeting people face to face and um, you know, these people that we've been corresponding for weeks or even on the, on email exchanges, you'll be able to meet them and, and talk, talk uh, shop. <laughs> right, right. Yep, absolutely.
what about the um the general public like that's for um practitioners is mm -hmm. it the public because what what i'm seeing now is in today's world for someone to really get well they've got to become their own doctor and right. so do they do people have resources as well that they can use you know there is a part of the website that is frequently asked questions that we're working on kind of building out and um, offering that to folks. I believe the first, just because we're understanding what we are and uh, navigating this process, the first conference will be closed and will be for providers, but we encourage patients to tell their doctors about that. If their doctors seem interested, come and get the training. Um, right. So that way they can help more folks. But, you know, when I think about what's out there there's so many um great uh blogs out there um that have been managed by people who have also navigated these mold waters before um and of course it's so late here some of them are escaping me right now but um uh biotoxin journey i believe is one of them um health rising i believe is another one um you know there's so many people out there who have navigated this process and they have so much wonderful and beautiful information up for people to help navigate even self-hacked um the better health guy with scott forsgren that's also another a uh, great outlet for people to kind of learn how to um, be their own advocate and help navigate this process. Great. Now you have warned me that you give long answers. Now you haven't dominated the conversation. That still was, was my job this time, but I'll let you have the last word. Uh, what single piece of advice would you give to our viewers who may be thinking they've got mold or they know they've got a mold infestation? What is the best piece of advice you can give them? It could be something you've mentioned already, but what's the most mm -hmm. important in your mind? Stay calm. Yes. And find a support team. I think the biggest concern that I find, you know, people, people manage, people will figure out how to find a safe place to live. They'll, heck, some people go to the desert and stay in a tent. If it's seasonal, some people will stay in a tent outside. Some people will find a friend's house to stay in. The biggest concern I have for people is to not operate from a space of fear and um, just perpetuate that stress on themselves. I am a big believer of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, he was a um, part of the psychology uh, movement. And his concept is that we have kind of this um, pyramid of needs. And really, our base need is um, food, shelter, and support. And there's something to be said when you shake that foundation for someone, all of the other things, you know, their social interactions, their work, their money, all the things that get stacked on top of those really basic needs right. just get shook to their core. And there's so many people who are scared or alone or, you know, heck, even their spouse doesn't believe them or their family doesn't believe them. And that happens and it's real. And if that's happening to you, find a community 
find someone who believes you, find someone who supports you, and use the strength that you guys can develop together to navigate what you're going through. Because as soon as you hit that point where you feel helpless and you feel lost, and it, that is so hard to pull out of. It is so, so hard to pull out of. So I just ask that um, when there is an issue and you're thinking that it could be an issue, really work to find your support team and find strength in yourself and know that it will be okay and you will figure it out. Fantastic advice. Dr. Lauren Tessier, thank you so much for coming to our show. You've taught us so much. And now, um, now our viewers can do, become um, proactive yes. and part of looking after themselves. Thank you once again. Thank and you goodbye, so much. And goodbye to Facebook viewers. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thank you.